Are you facing a crisis in your life or business? It's time to steer yourself in the right direction through the real experiences, passion, and courage of our guests. We're taking the helm with your host, Lynn McLaughlin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Helm. Before I formally introduce Dr. Jan Canty, I must give you a content warning. This episode was recorded in the middle of May, and we are going to be talking about homicide, homicide survivors, and the domino effect of murder. Dr. Jan Canty's life was divided into before and after segments. Her spouse of nearly 11 years went missing, and she discovered he'd had a secret life for 18 months after he was brutally murdered. We'll be talking about the many grief-stricken people lost in the shadows of mayhem, court dockets, social estrangement, and misunderstanding, and the supports that Dr. Canty has now put in place for homicide survivors. Dr. Canty holds a PhD in psychology. She is an author, a renowned speaker, a world traveler, a former triathlete and cancer survivor, and she hosts the podcast, The Domino Effect of Murder, where she says she has met her tribe. Thank you, Dr. Canty, for taking the time to join us. Well, thank you for that and the introduction. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, I could go on and on, trust me, but I think we'll get to many more details as we have our conversation today. So uh, I have had the honor to read your book, uh, Dr. Canty. I had to put it down several times. Um, I, I think maybe we can start by the way you describe your life. You say it's been divided into a before and after segment. Let's go back to the before so our listeners and viewers can get a context of, of how everything came to fruition. To before. Um, life before that was pretty conventional. I, we were married 11 years and I was very active in school, uh, graduate school, and he was busy with his practice. He was a psychologist as well. And my life was so consumed with getting my degree that it didn't leave much room for socializing or let alone doing entertaining or traveling or anything of that sort. So my nose was in a book and he was busy with his practice and to the point where I didn't even bother decorating the house or furnishing it. I was so focused on getting through school and commuting to school. It was a long distance every day that it was not important. So our lives were pretty routine and not, not very interesting really. Okay, so I think many of us right now can relate to you, your professional, uh, building your degree, uh, building your future with your husband. And I think it's also important to mention he was 18 years my senior. I think that had a role in some of this. And then the after segment begins. Well, that began the evening of July the 13th in 1985. Uh, it was, again, a routine evening. He was supposed to be home from work about 630 and it was a very bad storm that day. I remember that vividly. I was sprinting around the house, closing windows, turning on uh, flash, making sure flashlights were ready, et cetera. And I sat down to watch a three hour special on television uh, for AIDS. And so I lost track of time. And when I looked up, it was dark and I was stunned because, I mean, partly it was dark because of the storm, but he was way overdue and that was not like him. So this is before cell phones, before the internet. So I had to do what I could do to figure out where he was. And that was difficult considering the weather and no cell phone contact. Hours went by and still no sign of him. 
I asked my neighbor to drive me downtown in the storm to go to his office. And we, he we graciously agreed to do that because it was in a bad neighborhood. And we did, and that didn't provide any clues. So the next morning, I, I mean, I catnapped all night. And the next morning I went to report him missing at the police station and they would not take a report. So I went home and waited and waited. And then I called my parents and they were already planning on visiting me but I asked them if they could come earlier, which they did. And essentially the next week I was, or maybe it was even eight days, I just sat there waiting and trying to think where he could be. And uh, the media, I finally called the radio station because the police wouldn't do anything. And they put out information. And as it turns out, my mother-in-law had connections with the police department and finally got them to get moving on it. My parents flew in and about eight days later, I got a call from Detective Marlis Landeros asking me to come down to the police station, which I did. And I met with Detective Gil Hill, who incidentally was just coming off the movie set with Eddie Murphy for Beverly Hills Cop 1. He played his boss, Inspector Todd. And I only mentioned that because he's just like that in real life. He's uh -huh. very short worded and to the point intense. And he basically sat me down and said, you know, we believe your husband's been murdered, but we don't have his body yet. We'll be in touch. I mean, it was very quick because all eyes were on me and I was stunned. I, and the only other thing he said was you better go home and check your finances because he's been seen giving out a lot of cash downtown on Casper street, which didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. So I did. I went home and checked our finances and they were a mess because he had been taking, said he'd been taking care of that. And that was just like chapter one of the mess as it unfolded. So that's how it's, that's how it began. And I was in limbo for about a week on, at that point. In limbo. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's already been eight days. So yes. is there not a rule and forgive me for my naive naivety here. Maybe it's today and it wasn't back then. A person after 24 hours of being missing, missing, you can form, you know, a filing report, I guess, is one thing, but them taking action is a different one, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it's really no law saying you have to wait 24 hours. It's kind of precinct by precinct, how much they want to devote to it, unless there is a special reason, like the person has Alzheimer's or is a child, then they'll spring into action because it's not against the law to go missing as an adult if you're capable. So that's why they hesitate. And it was maddening because I knew it was very out of character for him and that time was not on our side. So I did what I could and then sat and waited with my parents until, like I said, Inspector Gil Hill called us down. And then uh, we waited more and the media whipped up because they got news of the radio broadcast. And that was like chapter two of the nightmare because they were increasingly intrusive, brusque, rude, invasive, not helpful whatsoever. In fact, they were a hindrance. For example, they published a map to my house on the front page of the Detroit News showing where his office was and where I lived. And so people started coming by and pointing and taking pictures and it just got worse. No empathy whatsoever. None. No I was an object of curiosity. And the public at large 
looked at it like entertainment as a sideshow and they weren't helpful. So from there, uh, I got a second call from Detective Landeros, who was an amazing detective, I wanna add, calling me back, calling us back downtown. So we got off on the fifth floor of the 11 story building and they brought us in. And again, he was very, Inspector Gil Hill was very short on words. And he just said, you know, we have his body and the parts in the morgue and we need you to go identify them. And that was the end of that discussion. So you had no warning at all before that time no. that he had been dismembered? No. So I I couldn't function. I mean, I, I, I wanted to cooperate, but I, my legs would not lift me. And my parents helped me up and Detective Landeros drove me over to the morgue, which wasn't far at all. That's the old morgue, the new morgue. I don't know where it is. They tore the one down that I was called to. And again, I had trouble getting there, getting out of the car. And she and my father led me to the booth where they had his head displayed. And she said to me, all you have to do is say yes or no, but you have to say it out loud. I guess because they were recording it. That part is kind of fuzzy. I don't remember a lot of the details of that or even who else was there. But after I made the identification, I started my way out of the building and the Media was camped on, and this was on a Sunday at 7 a.m. The media was at the doorstep and I had been functioning on very little sleep and was quite stressed by what I had just observed. So my head wasn't in the right place at all. And I hadn't eaten pretty much in a week, just snacks. I wasn't hungry. My stomach was upset. And as I'm starting out the building, I, I, what I thought I saw was a machine gun on turrets, but that's really a state of my mind. It was just a camera on a tripod, a tripod, but that was not my mindset at that moment. And I just froze. Detective Landero saw that and spun me around and took me out the back and asked me to lay down in the back of her squad car. And she drove me back to police headquarters. <clears throat> I don't know where my parents were. Like I said, there are parts of it that are fuzzy. Well, thank God for her. Thank God she had the yeah, she was, and the compassion and the caring to, to help you very, in that moment. She was very helpful. Oh. So then we got home and then it was just from, from that point, it was fending off the media, trying to make sense of it, planning our safety because they did not know if everybody had been caught or what the motive was exactly. So my dad was very insistent on sleeping downstairs and keeping every door locked and even the gate to the garden locked and our cars inside the garage locked. And we waited and waited for news and rests and so forth. And that took a while. And in the meantime, we planned his funeral, which I did not really want, but his mother did. So I let her, whatever she wanted was okay. But if it had been up to me, I would not have had a memorial. And the media arrived. I arrived 90 minutes before the service began to specifically tell the undertaker at Verheiden Funeral Home in Gross Point Park that I did not want the media involved. And he meekly said, well, it's a public street. We can't keep them away. And I said, I'm not arguing that. It's a private building and I don't want them inside at all. They don't belong here. I don't want them in here. And he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and went on his way. And within 45 minutes, there was camera crews and lights and microphones and 
all manner of intrusion to the point where some of the people who came as just regular attendees were making snide remarks to them like you know haven't you had you fill you bastards get out of here i mean it was a sideshow yeah and i was sitting in front i didn't even dare turn around and i could just feel the commotion and tension behind me and the second i could i got up to leave and one of the reporters shoved a big camera in my face almost touching my nose and i turned away and left and went home i don't even know how my parents got home i I, I got home and I locked all the doors and I just sat there by myself. I'm like, how did I get here? It only been two weeks and it seemed like a year since my life had been normal. I, I just think in that two week time, the, I mean, trauma after trauma after trauma. And then to find out that your husband had been living a different life for uh, almost yes. two years. Um, yeah, as 18 well. months. I, yeah, oh. that came out. And then the next blow came when I my mentor said to me, you've got to get some sleep. You, you can't get by on catnaps. <laughs> you can't, you're, you shouldn't be driving. And so I reluctantly went to my doctor to request Xanax to help me sleep, which I had a psychological aversion to the whole idea because I'd seen what drug abuse can do in, in my studies, you know, and in my mm -hmm. practice. But he gave me a very small dose. And within the first dose, I slept 16 hours. I mean, I was just exhausted. And so the next thing came when my physician said to me, your husband has been downtown with these street people. I really want you to get HIV testing. Oh. And I'm like, what? I mean, HIV at that moment had just been out and the Elysian blood test had just been approved the week before he recommended it to me. So it was all brand new and there was no treatments available, none on the horizon. It was a death sentence if you had it. So I went to the doctors and they gave me the blood test, which was humiliating because they, it's kind of like COVID today. I mean, they were double gloved with uh, face masks on and, and I'm thinking if prostitution, because one of the two accomplices in the murder was a prostitute. If one, if prostitution is a victimless crime, why am I here? Mm -hmm. After, after everything you've already endured. And then he said to me, my physician said to me, this is a brand new test. So there's going to be some false positives and some false negatives, which means that you're going to have to undergo this test every year for the next seven years before we know the results. Oh my Lord. And I went back home and I'm thinking, how much more can they take from me? I'm bankrupt. My husband's dead. I have no privacy. My health is in jeopardy. And my, and the public is at my doorstep. I was so angry. And that was a turning point, too, because I had shifted out of being frightened to being angry. And by that time, the preliminary hearing came by, which I did not want to go to, but I was subpoenaed to go to. So I had to go and I'm there and I was the first person to be called. And by this time, my head of steam was really growing at this point. I was so angry by the whole thing, by the public, by what my husband had done, by the way the police, except for Detective Landeros, had treated me. And then I'm called to a meeting I don't even want to go to, but I had to be there. So it was very, very crowded. There was two security checks, one at the front door and one at the courtroom entrance. And the judge wanted a secondary weapons check at the doorway to the court hearing because John Fry, the murderer, had been known to be 
privy to a lot of information about other murders in the city, and he was worried that something would, the judge was worried something would happen in the courtroom. So mm. we had to undergo that. And then they separated my parents from me, which I didn't like, and they made them sit them sit way in the back in an ante room so they couldn't quote coach me on the witness stand, which was ridiculous. I was so angry. Nobody could have coached me at that point. And so I was the first witness to be called and I was going up this crowded aisle in the courtroom, which is not quiet. There's a lot of jostling. There was reporters and people sitting and there was bailiffs and so forth and so on. And I saw the two defendants on my left at the table, at the defense, at the defense table. And I was so angry. I acted like I'd been jostled but I hadn't been in reality. And I just slapped my hand on their table as if to say, I'm here, I'm in your face. And you know, this whole thing, the way you're describing it to me and, and the way I read it in your book too. I mean, you're the murdered victim's wife. What what testimony, I mean, for Pete's sakes, they murdered him. What, where's all the evidence? The, to, to me, the, the testimony should have been what the police discovered, the gruesomeness of the scene, everything else. And you become the first person on the stand? I, to me, this whole yeah. thing is just... It's, it's just well, I, I wondered about that myself because I didn't know the defendants. I wasn't present at the murder. I wasn't part of the investigation. So right. what am I doing there? Mm -hmm. And I think in retrospect, all it was, was the fact that they wanted to make an impression on the judge. I was there just to make an impression on the judge. And because their questions were so brief. I mean, he basically asked me to describe what I saw in the morgue. Oh, my gosh. Oh. And I did. And then he asked me, the, the, the prosecuting attorney asked me a ridiculous question. He asked me, did you give anybody permission to dissect your husband's body? And I said, he wasn't dissected. He I had to read that three, three times, at least in your book, Dr. Kante. I kept reading it thinking I misinterpreted the question somehow. How was that even? It, it's, it's... It was a stupid question. Ugh. But I don't think he knew what else to ask me because I, I was of no use to the to the trial. But he did. And then the defense counsel wanted nothing to do with me. He couldn't get me out of the stand quick enough. So that was the preliminary exam. And of course, they were both charged. And then the trial was scheduled. This was like in August, I think, September. And the trial was scheduled for January, which is very quick time. But I wanted nothing to do with it. And I was not subpoenaed. And that's an area where some homicide survivors are at opposite from me in that they want to be there for every little thing. They want to uh, hear every motion and be in the, in the courtroom. I, I felt the other way around. I felt like no matter what happens, it's not going to change my life. I still be a widow. I'll still be broke. I'll still have a house to sell. I'm still going to be the subject of gossip. That's not going to change my life, no matter what happens. So I didn't care. It was like, I'm out of here. I'm just leave me alone. And I just wanted to figure out what I was going to do with my life. I had no idea. And the media would not let up. And it turns out that I did not know this then, but one of the reporters wanted to write a book. So any little thing that came up, it was splashed across the news to keep the ball going. Uh, John Fry had a successful escape from prison. So that made French news. And then they caught him. And then that was in the news. And and then his accomplice was given a very light sentence. She was out before I could sell my house. Uh -huh. uh, he was given life without the probability of parole, but although he died five years later in prison from hep C and complications of diabetes. So uh, 
I moved locally to try to, I finally sold my house, which was very difficult because the laws in Michigan still to this day state that if you have a homeowner who's died of a serious crime, you have to let that be known to anybody that's going to buy your house. Uh, it's a stigmatized property because in case they are superstitious and you don't tell them, mm -hmm. they can rescind the offer even years later. Uh, so that devalued the house. And I had nothing left financially. I started over, moved locally and liked my little place that I had. Uh, but uh, I didn't have the energy anymore or the focus I needed to do clinical work. I was depleted. I was just exhausted. And I couldn't, it wasn't that the practice wasn't there. People were still willing to come and everything, but I just felt exhausted all the time. And so I reluctantly made the decision I had to leave and start over. And I eventually did and went into teaching and found out I really enjoyed it. But I never I never did go back to full-time practice after that. Well, you had so much unresolved trauma, you know, and we know now that that has detrimental effects on our entire well-being, not just physically, you know, your exhaustion, your lack of sleep, emotionally, mentally, all of it. And right. so you chose to move to give yourself a new start. And that worked right. to some degree, did it not? Yes. Yeah. I, I really liked my uh, job. I liked my coworkers. I liked where I lived. The, it was a lot cheaper. The only thing that was a big negative was the climate. Uh, oh my God. It was 130 <laughs> degree temperature range from summer to winter. And I thought, oh. and, and I thought, I can't live with this. The humidity. I, I remember this is back in the day when women wore pantyhose and I washed out a pair of pantyhose <laughs> and hung them outside to dry. It took two days. Oh my goodness. That's how humid oh. it was. And I thought I, if I'm going to leave, I better do it before I get even more attached to the people here. So I eventually left and went further west but it was a good chain a good change for me because it was very very small rural community the, nobody knew me and I did not speak of what happened for 30 years yes I was just going to ask you that question and you say that there were three nearly simultaneous events that called you out after nearly 30 years after the murder what what were those three events I was at work one day and we had had a speaker come he was a physician. And frankly, I don't remember the main topic of why he was there. But one aside comment that he made was people who have a secret and live with it for a long time develop health problems from it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, that's not good. No. Nope. <laughs> and then that same week, we had a coworker missing and, and people were coming up to me and saying, could you imagine what that would be like to have somebody missing? And I'm going, oh, no, I can't imagine that. And I'm thinking, I'm lying. I know exactly what that's like. And then the third, so I went back to my office to think about those two things. And the third thing that happened was I, I glanced over at my bookshelf and there were all books about people who'd been through trauma of various kinds and came out of it to write about it, talk about it and so forth. And I thought, you know, if they can talk about it, so can I. And so I made the decision somewhat reluctantly to come out of my hiding, I guess you could say, and start talking about it with people that knew me well in my new state, my adopted state. So I did. And I was expecting, I think, more of the same treatment that I had had before. 
but it didn't turn out that way at all. People were exceedingly supportive and kind. And I felt like I could exhale and be more authentic for the first time in decades. And do you think that positively affected your overall health as well when you were able to disclose that and be free of maybe what you were holding in for so long? Well, I don't know. I, I, uh, as part of my strategy to feel better, I started doing triathlons yes. and I was doing, I was in training to do my fifth triathlon. This would have been in 1990, no, 2004 or so. And I fell and broke my arm and I went to the ER and they diagnosed cancer. And this is years later. And I ended up Getting, getting a stem cell transplant and radiation, chemo, the whole works. And, and it's the kind of cancer that has no cure. So that developed later, whether or not it had a root, has roots in that, I have no idea. But um, I just felt better psychologically that I didn't have to be so on guard because it would come up like if I went to see a physician and you fill out the paperwork to see a new doctor and it would ask the question, are you married? Circle, if it's a supplies, you know, widow. And I didn't, I always left it blank. <laughs> Mm. Or have you ever had a period of depression or anxiety? And I wouldn't answer. It's just those little ways that it would come up, you know. And then when I started dating again, which was many, many years later, my now husband uh, was dating me. And, you know, you come to that point where you're dating, where you want to find out, have you ever been married before? And I didn't want to tell him. I just said, yeah, but I'm not ready to talk about it. I'll tell you later. And he had to pull it out of me. And I don't think he, he after we've been married for, I don't know what it was, 12 years after when the, or maybe 13, when the book came out, it wasn't until he read the book that he knew the whole story. I just felt I didn't want to go back there and, and drag it out again. It's like, I want to leave it in the past. But at the same time, I felt compelled to be a spokesperson for other homicide survivors because there is so little out there in the way of help, even today, for homicide survivors. And I want to be a voice for them. And uh, you've started your podcast. Let's talk about the domino effect of murder, where you say you've met your tribe and you're providing supports for people who are homicide survivors. Correct. I got the idea from a relative who does crime scene cleanup for a living. She suggested that I do this. And I at first was hesitant because I didn't know much about doing podcasts, but I tried it. And it was like a light bulb went on. When I interviewed several at once, I, I mean, one after the other, I started seeing patterns. I started seeing parallels between my experience and their own, not so much the murder, but the aftermath. In fact, after the first year, I sat down and listened to all my episodes, one after the other for a day. And I was looking for what are the commonalities? What are the parallels? And what I, the conclusion I came to was that the, homicides themselves were quite unique, but not the aftermath, that there's predictably the same issues come up like social stigma, physical exhaustion, uh, feeling angry, and, and on and on. And it's, it was kind of validating to find out, gee, everybody goes through this that's been through this path. It's not unusual. But, you know, most of the time, research and podcasts don't deal with the aftermath of homicide. The spotlight is on the perpetrator. I mean, for example, if you think of Ted Bundy, mm -hmm. some people could tell you, some, but not many, could tell you the names of the victims. But how many people could tell you the names or what happened 
to the homicide survivors of those that perished. Absolutely. You're, you're, and that's you're true right. across the board. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whether it's a mass homicide, whether it's a serial murder, it doesn't matter. The, the aftershocks go on and on, and yet there's very little attention being given to that. And one of the reasons that's so relevant is because until that's adequately addressed, then those people have difficulty parenting the next generation because they're still reeling from the losses of their own life, which doesn't make them the best equipped to handle trauma or depression or acting out in their children. So it's really important that it gets addressed. And for every homicide, it's been shown that there's between eight and 10 people that are deeply and immediately impacted. Well, that's a lot of people when you consider our homicide rate has gone up in the United States over the last three years, and it now is about 20,000 people per year. And for each of those eight to 10 people are deeply impacted. That's a lot of people that are reeling that aren't getting the treatment that they need. And it is still not a feature, to my knowledge, it is still not a feature of any mental health training program. And waiting for the system to change is not an option. So you're providing no. the tools and the strategies to the victims themselves so that they can take action to improve their own lives. So, I mean, let's just talk about for people who are survivors of experiencing a violent murder, what what would you what are some of the themes that you say you just went over there um, in the in for after the first year and it's been much longer now? What are some of the pieces of advice that you would give to someone who's had such a horrific experience to to try to maybe take even just the first step? Well, I think the way to divide it is to look at three different aspects of your functioning, the psychological, the sociological, and the physical. So psychologically, it's important to get connected with other homicide survivors, whether that's virtual, whether that's in a support group, however you do it, do it because they speak your language. I think of support groups or other homicide survivors as like an embassy in a foreign country. They know the language, they know the lay of the land, they know your rights, they know what you need to do. And it's refreshing to sit in the presence of others who speak your language and who've been down this path without all the, uh, the morbid interest in it, but they're genuinely interested. So psychologically, that's what I would recommend. Somewhat from a sociological perspective, I think it's important to recognize the probability that your social relationships will undergo a lot of change. Mm -hmm. People that you thought would be there for you won't be. And people that you did not expect would come through will come through. But you're going to become the poster child for crime in your neighborhood, right or wrong. And your children will be likely treated the same way. So there's a lot of stigma that's attached to being a crime victim, even if you had nothing to do with it. And it's good to understand that so that you don't take it personally, so that you don't think, what, is, what did I do? What is with my family that brings about this unwanted attention? It's not your family or you, it's across the board. And so again, what you need to do is to find a, a good friend. They don't have to be a homicide survivor, but a good friend that you can just sit and listen. They don't have to give you advice. What I did, again, this is before the internet, is I traveled internationally to get my, my perspective right. And I met trauma survivors in different continents. And when I came home from my travels, I thought, I don't have it so bad. <laughs> There's oh. could be a lot worse than what I went through. And that helped me socially. 
And then physically, it's important to get sleep. It's important to deal with your pre-morbid medical conditions that'll be made worse by the stress that you're under, whether that's hypertension or GI issues or whatever it might be. So you need to get a, a physician involved uh, or nurse practitioner more likely these days. It's preferably somebody with experience in homicide or trauma, which is not likely, but that's ideal if you can find that, to help them address you physically and get you some sleep. Because until you get some sleep, nothing is gonna change. That's the bare bottom of what you need to do. And there's you know, different ways that you can go about that, whether that's, in my case, I moved, putting up blackout curtains, um, getting a guard dog, uh, having a white noise machine, making sure you exercise, cut back on caffeine, whatever it is you need to do to get sleep, you need to do that in a, in a regular basis. And so by, I would basically recommend that you look at all three dimensions of your life and see what you can do to make interventions in all of those three areas. And we want listeners and viewers to uh, tune into your podcast, The Domino Effect of Murder, of course, where you'll ha you have many, many insights and people who've had a personal experience as well. You've also had professionals on the, on the show, is my understanding. I have. I've had mm -hmm. several homicide detectives. I had a blood pattern analyst. I've had a, a funeral director who had a murder in her own family. And I've had somebody who was wrongfully convicted of homicide and spent 16 years behind bars for no reason, which has taken me on a different kind of path lately. I've been kind of pulled into the Innocence Project to speak I... about that because we don't just want, homicide survivors don't just want a conviction. We want an accurate conviction. And that is something that is very difficult for homicide survivors to get. When they get in there, they want blood. They're so angry. And if they hear there's been a confession, they can't wrap their head around the fact that it was forced, that the person truly might be innocent. So that's why I'm being pulled into the Innocence Project to speak on behalf of wrongly convicted homicide uh, convicts. And they're out there. And it's, it's so tragic when you sit and listen to them of, the, of what's become to them in their life. I had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Deskovit too, and the, a percentage of my sales on Amazon from my book sales go to the Innocence Foundation. Really? Uh, the work that he is doing is absolutely remarkable. And uh, I, I was quite taken aback at about how many innocent, here in Canada, it's not just in the United States, it's actually global, how many innocent people have, uh, have been sent to prison. Um, I do want to ask you, I, a little bit of hope, maybe. Has the court system changed at all? I mean, I, I know that possibly there are victim statements that are being submitted in writing, uh, maybe by video. Has anything improved in the court system? Not a great deal, because yes, it's true that victim impact statements are allowed, but the research shows that judges don't pay much attention to them. And I don't totally fault the judges for that because some of the victim impact statements are poorly written. They're just lashing out. They're just showing anguish. Well, that doesn't really help a sentencing decision. They have to be factual. So you have to speak to why is this particular defendant at risk to the community or why is the community at risk if this defendant is given a light sentence or no sentence? Um, and I don't think a lot of victim impact statements hit that sweet spot enough. Uh, but on the whole, no, we're still not wanted in there. I, I read recently where a, a homicide survivor was told to stay in the hallway because she was too strong of a person. The defense, what the defense did is they put her on, her, on their witness stand. 
I mean, I'm sorry, the defense put them on their witness list, never calling her to the stand, never intending on calling her to the witness stand so that she would, because you, you can't go into court unless you've already given your testimony as a witness. You have to wait. And so they put her on their witness list so she would have to wait in the hallway until the trial was over. And, sh and therefore she would not be allowed to enter the courtroom. My right. God. Oh, oh because my God. it is still viewed as a crime against the state. It is not viewed as a crime against the family or the individual. And that is true today, even more so, I think, than when I was going through it. You are definitely on the periphery of what goes on. And as I've come to the conclusion reluctantly, it is a criminal centric system. It is not and never said it was a victim centric system. So if you're looking for them to help you, you're not going to get it there. And so it's best to go in with open eyes and know yep. what to expect, right? Which is what you're helping people understand. Uh, Dr. Canty, your website is jancantyphd.com. You've got a glossary of terms for homicide survivors, survivors, national organizations and recommended books. And of course, your podcast. What closing words would you like to give to people listening and viewing today? I just want to tell them that there's support out there. If you look in the right places, it's too hit and miss, but it is out there. There are, There is a National Homicide Survivors Day every September 25th in some large city nearby, and you can always connect with others on that date by going to the ceremony if you chose to do that. There are books, there are websites, and there is hope. I mean, there are there are resources out there for you. There are several support groups now available online uh, on Facebook. I have one called Survivor Homicide Survivors and Thrivers, Homicide Survivors and Thrivers. Mm -hmm. And there are other ones as well. So it, you don't have to go through this alone. And I would strongly recommend you don't. And let's end on you. I understand that you're still practicing and you have two stepdaughters and, and life is very good today. Is it not? And I have a, and I have a second book coming out, hopefully right. by the end of summer called coping with the traumatic loss of our loved one. And it's going to be for both homicide and suicide survivors. And it's more of a type of a guide is my understanding. Yes. And it's been written with 17 other professionals. Oh, fantastic. Well, we look forward to everyone who's listening and watching. Look up Dr. Canty at jancantyphd.com. Uh, follow up and take that first step towards your own recovery. And, you know, I'm sure there's advocacy groups that people, if you feel like you need to do something, start to become involved in some way. I, I, to me, that's a way to, to feel empowered if you can be part of the advocacy to force change. Yeah, I think it helps both both parties. It helps the survivor who's offering help as well as the person who's getting the benefit of the help. Mm -hmm. I'm going to commend you, Dr. Canty, for the incredible and passionate work you're doing to support survivors of homicide. Uh, and uh, for those of us who are listening and viewing, perhaps thinking of things in a different way and thinking about the victims, their families, their loved ones, and those 10 additional people have been touched by that murder is uh, what we can all do to start. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now, I'll mention just before we sign off that we're taking a break until June 29th as my husband and I and our family celebrate the wedding of my son to his fiancée uh, in the middle of June. We'll see you back here on the 29th with Dr. John Freer, and we'll be talking everything special education. Stay healthy and safe, everyone. Thanks for tuning in and posting your review of Taking the Helm on your favorite platform. We'll give you a shout out in a future episode. To be inspired by people who are steering us in the right direction, go to 
lynnmclaughlin.com, where you can search previous guests by the topic of your choice. And while you're there, download Lynn's gift. There's more than one way to get through a crisis.